0: All right, welcome back to the Struck Aerospace Engineering podcast. I'm your co-host, Dan Blewett. On today's podcast, first thing we're going to talk about in the news section, unfortunately, is the the crash of the recent uh, 737-500 aircraft out in Indonesia. So we'll talk a little bit about that Uh, in our second segment. We're going to talk about Bombardier they have a pretty amazing uh factory where they produce wings and they're pretty just high tech in general Alan's worked there uh, in the past so we're going to talk about some of their tech uh as far as their assembly line goes and and all that stuff and in our evtol segment today we're going to talk about YASA merging its general aviation and vtol certification Jaunt exploring their fuel system to potentially extend uh, the range, which is something we actually chatted about last week. Archer finding a production partner and GM their uh, their crack at the EVTOl market and how far it's now lagging behind. So, Alan, let's start with the Boeing 737. Uh, so that crash out of Indonesia has gotten a lot of press, obviously, because you know terrible terrible accident um but it wasn't in the air very long and then it seems it plummeted 10,000 feet in less than a minute and uh, can you shed some perspective on that that seems like a really precipitous drop
1: yeah the the aircraft was at about 10,000 feet it had uh, taken off and uh headed over the over the water and then just seemed to disappear and there were some reports from some ships nearby that watched the aircraft plummet into the ocean And then it it sounded like that the aircraft was essentially in a full nose dive right into the water, which indicates really one of two things. If the aircraft has something, something severely wrong with it, then yeah, you can kind of get in those situations, like you stall it and push the nose down and continue to push the nose down. And then obviously you will crash in that sort of situation. But most aircraft, when they have some power plant problem of some sort, don't go plummeting downward like that. The airplanes are can glide and you would think you would try to set it up to glide but it just leads you to think that one of two things happen here either the pilot slash pilots decided that for whatever reason they were disoriented or they were and maybe in some cases there's been cases of suicides uh, that they just pushed the nose down and drove it into the water Uh, the other possibility is you have some control flight surface uh, anomaly where it just drives the nose down and the pilots can't fight it off as soon as they find the black boxes for that aircraft they're going to have a pretty good indication in, in, in an hour or two usually of what the flight parameters were air speeds attitudes uh cockpit cockpit voice recorder uh, will tell you a lot um It could have some previous crashes so there's a lot still to be learned here but this is not i think one of the first things that happened and everybody took a held their breath as soon as i saw this news was is it a is it a max airplane right is it something to do Mm -hmm. with the mcas system uh you know weird things happen it doesn't sound like it's a dash 500 right and it was built back in the 90s does that sound right dan 26 years old
0: that plane yeah
1: Okay. So it's been around a long time, and I also heard it was a former continental aircraft. It came from the United States originally. It, was, it flew livery here and then uh, was purchased in Indonesia. So the airplane has a lot of flight history around the United States. Obviously, all the mechanical logs go along with the aircraft. So if there was some sort of weird structural flight control issue with the aircraft, going back to the, the maintenance logs would tell you a lot about it. So I think we just got to let the investigators take a look at it, uh, do their deep dive, try to find the black box. That's one of the worst parts about crashing into the ocean is trying to find the black boxes. And black boxes have a little beeper on them that is activated when they, when there's seawater or water around. And so it'll start making pinging noises that—and I, I don't remember how long that lasts, uh, but it helps— uh, helps yeah. the the crews locate where the aircraft is and try to find the black box because there's the, the really the one piece of information you really need off the airplane is that black box and then if they can recover
0: which they have the they actually, they actually have found them. Mm-hmm.
1: Good. How deep yeah. was that aircraft? Did they say how deep the aircraft was underwater? Was it a thousand feet or a hundred feet under the water? Because that'll make a big difference on what the Analysis is that they can pull some of the wreckage up. Oh,
0: they're only rated. to like a certain pressure level. The black box like water. No, 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 the black box.
1: The black box is fine. It's but the 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 wreckage crew, the the ability to uh, remove that from the sea bottom. It's limited by, you know, how deep it is. That's why a lot of oh. aircraft are not recovered and they have the little submarines go down and look at them. But if they can rec- actually pull some of the aircraft back up, then you have a much better sense of recreating the aircraft before it crashed.
0: Yeah, I can't find that, yeah. that data from any of the articles I've read. But, mm. yeah, oddly enough, a fisherman saw it go into the water, which is crazy. Can you imagine seeing mm-hmm. something like that? Man, he said it just hit hit the water like lightning and just exploded. So
1: well the, the having an eyewitness is actually very helpful because you can eliminate a number of things was the aircraft on fire yes or no mm-hmm. uh, was, was the aircraft intact like was it missing a tail or is it missing an engine? Uh, you know, most people have a hard time discerning that kind of stuff. But if they if it is something they had seen, it is helpful in the accident investigation. Those eyewitnesses, having looked at a lot of <laughs> accident eyewitness accounts, they will vary a lot. If, if if a large group of people has seen that accident occur, they'll have a lot of varying opinions of what. Yeah actually happened in front of them. But usually if the aircraft's on fire, they can tell it. If the aircraft uh, is missing an engine is one thing they can usually tell. So it, at least put some parameters about what the possibilities of the, the crash
0: were. All right, so in our engineering segment today, we're gonna to talk about uh, Bombardier, and they have a, a pretty amazing uh, production facility uh, overseas, Alan, you've been there before, right? And, mm-hmm. and you attest yeah. to the fact that this place is, is just a, a modern marvel, essentially. Um, you know, they, they create wings, they create lots of different parts, but one of their things is they've, uh, they assemble their wings with a lot of, uh, pre-pregnated carbon fiber. And that's just a really complicated process in the way that they're made. Mm-hmm. Right. And mm-hmm. obviously everything in the aircraft industry is, is incredibly precise. Um, but you said their facility here just seems to just take everything to the, to the next level.
1: Yeah. So that Bombardier sold the facility at the end of 2020. I think that finally, that transaction finally happened. So Spirit Aerospace now owns the facility, but it's the same group of people. It's the same facility that I participated in 10-ish years ago when we were working on the, on the C-Series A220 and on the Lear, Learjet 85, uh, the technology the, the carbon fiber composite technology in Northern Ireland is amazing. No, Nothing can really describe the capabilities they had in that facility. So they had built a, a brand new facility at because the, they're right on the water. So if, if you ever visit Belfast – and go to the, the now Spirit facility. It is right on the water where the ship docks used to be, where they used to make ships. Like the Titanic was made just down the road from where uh, the wing is assemb- wing manufacturing facility is for now Spirit. Uh, but they have built a brand new facility, and it's a huge facility. And I had an opportunity to be in there a couple of times where they're manufacturing the C Series A two twenty wing, and it is amazing it's like walking inside of a spaceship there is so much technology and uh, engineering going on in that facility to make these composite wings and they they had developed a a means of what they call resin transfer infusion so they're essentially uh, putting carbon fiber in place uh, that's sort of tacked together, so stringers and spars kind of get all put together, and they're making and they and they're. Make, and they're, and they're um, let me describe it this way: so when they when they're when they're making wing scan, they're basically laying down what is essentially dry fabric and and putting in st- some stringers and things into it, and then injecting epoxy into that mold and then curing it. That leads itself to a lot of efficiencies. So there's, you're not working with a, necessarily a pre-preg material, which is tacky, and there's exposure issues, how much time it can be out, and how does it all cure up. And they're making fairly thick assemblies, and they were the, the, the trick that the RTI process was able to do was really compact all the carbon fiber and get the right amount of resin into it consistently. And that's hard to do on very, very thick composite structures, and the A220 wing is very thick, uh, relatively speaking. So... They were able to do things that I had not seen before, and the consistency of, that, of it was amazing. The other part about what Belfast technology was at the time is that they were designing the aircraft under the new lightning uh, and fuel s- system safety rules, which put a lot of uh, features into the wing to prevent arcing and sparking from either electrical failures or from lightning and other things. Bad situations, but essentially uh, they had designed the wing to be—it's got to be the safest wing at the time uh, ever developed in terms of its protection against arcing and sparking into the wing. And they did that through a lot of technology advancements. And they they advanced materials, they advanced uh, design techniques, they advanced uh, failure analyses, and a whole plethora of different things. You wouldn't think. Uh, would come out of a facility like that you think like boeing would do that or airbus would have the have the capability of doing that but it really just came out of belfast and they were just it was amazing to watch and i was there i don't know probably seven eight nine maybe ten times overall and every time you go there you just like your eyes would open up again like wow there's something else amazing going on in this facility because a lot of times when you go visit an aircraft facility uh you know a lot of the things are old it's just old old technology it's an old facility it's kind of dirty it's industrial it has all those has all those little features like going into an old uh, automotive factory similar feel but in belfast it wasn't like that at all this this new facility was just completely different and, and amazing so i know that there's uh just keeping track track on what they've been doing lately. They they're making some other advancements. Queen's University has a site at the uh, Spirit facility on campus, right right there, right near the front gate. So they're they're working with the the local university and uh, all kinds of other um, universities and technology centers around them to improve their products and i I always think their products are amazing so i I just like watching the technology jump out of there because it's such a cool facility and it's full of really really bright individuals
0: so i mean how have you seen like production facilities evolve over the years i mean obviously they're still continuing to but uh, I assume they have a really long shelf life number one so that probably i don't Mm. know does that stifle stifle innovation does it always take like a brand new physical building to really make big leaps and advances in in like production technology
1: it does i i do think there is a, a mental aspect to that and you can feel it in the way the employees react when you walk into a facility that's sort of pre-World War II or just post-World War II facility, which is what a lot of aircraft companies still operate in. Uh, You can tell it's old. Things don't work right. um, It's dirty and dusty because it's industrial. And it just – that all general wear and tear happens. And I always feel like there's not going to be a lot of innovation there because everything says to you old-aged Yeah not new, right? Nothing new is being invented here. In fact, in a lot of cases, they're still building the same airplane they were building back in the 1950s or 60s in the same spot. So nothing has changed in 50, 60 years. So you get that, you get that feeling, right? And, and also, I think it just builds upon nothing new is going to be invented here. And when you do build a new facility, even with all the expense of it, right, but I, I think it just opens up mental doors to people. The, the the sights and the sounds and the smells or everything's fresh, and that I do think that opens up creativity. I think out a lot of times out in Silicon Valley, they're all in these new facilities and they're all changing the way they're what they're seeing. There's more windows, all those different things you don't necessarily see in, in an industrial environment. You uh, more aggressive, uh, quicker paced technology companies get rid of all that stuff and get away from all that old old world kind of an industrial environment just because I do think it produces more innovation. It, I think it does.
0: All right. So in our last segment today, we're going to talk about EVTOLs. And uh, so first on the docket, YASA is sort of uh, refiguring its uh, certification, merging the departments that will handle their fixed wing and and their vertical takeoff and landing aircraft, uh, which will also include drones. So Alan, obviously you speak all the time about certification and just how difficult it is does does this seem like an obvious move to you? Does this seem to make sense?
1: Well, there's a, there's a lot going on and I've been reading a, a really conflicting stories lately about the certification world. So EASA, is creating new rules where for EV2Ls where the FAA is not. The, the FAA is saying I have existing rules. And that is a dichotomy that we don't see very often where the European regulators and the United States regulators are not on the same wavelength here because you want to have consistency across those certification groups, for example. Uh, If I'm making a, a small part 23 light, light aircraft, I want to be able to sell that in the United States and Europe and not have any additional rules back eons ago. Now, Europeans had different rules than the Americans. So you'd certify the airplane in America, then have to go do a bunch of extra stuff to certify it in Europe. And it just led to barriers of entry. It's what it does. It slows down your ability to recover your investment in this product because even though your marketplace is in the United States and it's a 300 million person marketplace, you still like to pick up Europe because there's a lot of business aircraft activity or smart aircraft activity over there. So the EVTL uh, difference of certification approaches is, is, I think, really unique. And I have not heard of a merger yet. Usually they try to get everybody together and work out differences haven't heard it yet so if i'm a tail maker in germany like lilium i am concerned that i'm going to have to have two separate rules because lilium may be successful in europe but they really need to get that offered into america also and having two sets of rules is going to be just added added cost with probably not much difference in safety
0: yeah gotcha so moving on john air mobility is considering partnering with uh vertigo aero and if you don't know about vertigo they produce uh jet a hybrid electric systems with a 100 kilowatt or 180 (laughs) kilowatt generator coupled to high efficiency battery packs um Mm. so alan we talked about this last week where you know the Legitimacy of some of these EVTOL companies is going to depend on their range and the battery technology. Can they actually make these flights and, you know, make numerous flights in a day? They can't fly to Manhattan right. from Long Island once and then recharge for six hours. So, uh, mm-hmm. Jaunt, which you know they have the the, cyc- the gyrocopter sort of design, uh, they're one of the they're not afraid to it seems like explore this hybrid electric and battery powered model which right. probably makes sense. And at least a certain percentage of the EVTOL market probably needs to do that, right? Because otherwise, everyone's going to be maxed out. If everyone only uses battery power, everyone might be maxed out of very short trips. How do you feel about this potential partnership?
1: I think it's the first of many. And I bet you there's more activity going on in that front than, than we even can imagine right now. The battery technology is going to be limited. And if you are intending to make multiple trips short trips in a day then either you're going to be pulling batteries in and out like the sort of the pipistral design will allow you to do you can actually pull it out and plug another set of batteries in or you're going to have to have an auxiliary power source uh to supplement the the battery charge system battery ret- energy storage system that, that's there uh otherwise you're going to be sitting on the ground a long time um uh, there's no nothing wrong. I think there's some feeling that if it's not 100% plug it in, charge it, fly it, that it's doesn't have any value in the marketplace. That's a very invalid approach. I think if you have a design that is much more versatile and it can fly longer ranges and do multiple flights in a day is much more valuable than the one that it can, than an aircraft that can only make two flights a day. So I would envision multiple other sorts of technology, like we've seen some hydrogen hydrogen technology pop up recently. There's gonna have to be some play for that. This uh, Jet-A systems, is gonna be some play for that because at the end of the day where you wanna get to is you do wanna be able to plug it in quickly, recharge it. That'd be an ideal, but we're just not there yet in terms of battery technology and recharging technology and all the other fronts. We may get there in the next couple of years, but I got to sell airplanes today to keep my airplane company alive. So make the sacrifice, put in the additional power system so you can at least start production and sell an aircraft. I think that's the minimum you got to do right now. So I think we just got to keep listening to see where more of these things are going to happen. And I also kind of wonder with some of the automotive companies coming into play, and joining forces with the ev2l players if that's part of it is coming in with essentially uh, the ability to make high efficiency turbine gas burning systems that create electricity that would that would also make a lot of sense so we'll see how it plays out
0: so next up here is uh archer so we talked about archer aviation briefly on the show in the past Uh, they have a prototype looks very interesting and uh, they have partnered with Fiat Chrysler Automobiles, FCA, and uh, they're hoping that FCA can give them some input into cockpit design and a lot of those things that the automaker, you know, has been using in their cars. Um, mm-hmm. And, of course, Archer's design is potentially going to give them up to 60 miles at a top speed of up to 150 uh, right. miles, miles per hour. Um, but do you feel like small, this is my question for you, Alan, do you feel like small companies like this need to partner with these bigger firms like these automobile companies like is that partnership makes sense
1: i think at a top level it does one there may be some financing going on so some funding may be coming from fiat chrysler that will help propel the aircraft to being becoming reality great uh, I think there's also this assumption that the procurement system within a automotive manufacturer is probably pretty robust, and they know how to drive down costs and to, and to purchase things in quantity to drive down that cost while also maintaining quality. And if you're a new aircraft company, you don't don't have that those people on staff. Well, Fiat Chrysler does, and they clearly do. Uh, And then uh, the assembly aspects and how to make a factory work, which is sort of the Toyota, uh, Joby situation that if you're going to make as many aircraft as what you're promising to make, and then you need to really set up your factory in a certain way to be efficient. Fiat Chrysler can do that also. I always think when a heavy industrial company comes into an aircraft company, aircraft companies tend to produce things in dozens. (laughs) <laughs> you know, we may produce a dozen aircraft a month, something like that. And then you get a company that is in, is making dozens of cars a minute. That They're so, they're so different on perspective that mm-hmm. all the information you're getting from the automotive company is coming like a fire hose <laughs> at you. You can't absorb all the things they're talking about that quickly and try to react to it and the automotive company is going why can't you aircraft guys figure this stuff out <laughs> so they're just they're just living on different planets and or uh, that and it's going to be very hard for them to even talk the same language about how to do this thing because the aircraft engineers are all about safety and reliability and all these other things and fiat chrysler any automotive manufacturer is about shoving cars out the door consistently repeatedly both of those things can coexist, but there really hasn't been an aircraft company that has done that in a long time. So, um, you, when you bring in a partner of that size, I think there's a lot of risk for both sides. That they're just this whole thing is just never going to work um, because you almost need somebody in, in the in the middle <laughs> to negotiate both sides and explain what each side is talking about. Because it does feel like that. You feel like this automotive person's talking about putting on wheel lugs and we're talking about putting on wings how what how can they help
0: me right i mean i i could see especially from like higher up executives who have you know automotive production experience whereas maybe some of these like this new company that doesn't have uh, an aircraft yet but getting from one aircraft to thousands of aircraft that requires a lot of scale and production lines Mm -hmm. and you know nimble like choices of design and also of parts. You know, Elon Musk has talked about this. He's like, we don't want to just design the best new battery. We need to design the battery that can make sense for thousands and thousands and millions of cars. That's so right. you'd think they could help with that, but I think you're right that in the day to day, like gritty of it, it might be hard to marry the two types of engineers and figure out how they're gonna to work together when their designs are, are fundamentally very different.
1: Yeah, I, I definitely think so. My original, when I came out of college, I used to work for uh, what was General Electric, became Lockheed Martin, and we made spacecraft. So you talk about the lowest production rate of anything in the world, but the, probably the most complex thing in the world. So we made you know one or two or three of these spacecraft, and the amount of rigor going into every single one of them was just Absolutely off the charts. And moving into the aircraft industry, it's like there was like no controls at all. That's what it appeared like to us. There was like no controls on anything. You couldn't track parts. You don't know where that part necessarily came from, the level of detail. Um, There wasn't sort of the the planning and the controls that we had seen in spacecraft. This is a totally different world. And if you take that down to the next level or over to the next level, to automotive, it's going to be even less. So any particular vehicle running down a Detroit manufacturing line doesn't is not really an individual like it is in an aircraft. Uh it's just being sort of pushed out down the down the factory line with you know, it, there's a lot of details that go into it, but it's just not the same level of rigor. And until you can become comfortable with that you always think that it's chaos. And it's not chaos. It's organized chaos, I guess, but it's it's there is a method to the madness and it's just very difficult for an aircraft company, an automotive company to to try to join together. I think that has not proof fruitful in the past
0: yeah well and speaking as our last topic for today is uh you know general motors unveiled a, a cadillac branded personal drone um a number of years ago and uh kind of reporting back circling back to them it's you know gm was hoping that it would get to speeds of up to 56 miles per hour and be a rooftop to rooftop sort of personal travel device the design is very bizarre and unlike anything that exists currently you know real aviation um and you know this article out of evtol.com just says you know like they're very far behind other designs nowadays with you know more and more um, players coming into the market so i i know how you're going to feel about this so why don't you just come out come out with it well
1: i don't understand why they're even trying honestly it's not in their level of expertise it makes no sense it's not going to drive customers to buy their cars where what technology are they going to possibly develop in an aircraft that they're going to apply to cars or cars into an aircraft i i just don't see it and they have no expertise in certifying anything aircraft related and that which they would have to do so what is the point of this? I don't I don't understand what the point of that is because uh, you I I wouldn't buy an aircraft from General Motors. So last time General Motors or Ford or any other Chrysler, any of the other uh, automotive manufacturers in America built aircraft was World War II. And after World War II wrapped up, they immediately got back into the car business. They were not going to make airplanes. Uh, And so now that they're sort of tinkering around with it, any automotive company tinkering around with it at that level doesn't make any sense. Honda, years ago, I thought did it the right way in which they – basically created a separate division and it, it was a, a pet project for a while not about that, but they actually set up a separate division to learn all the stuff they needed to go learn. And then and when they had a really a, a very productive and useful design and then decided to build a factory and make it. And that has been productive, but that was like a, that was like a 20 year development program. <laughs> mm-hmm. I don't see GM spending three years developing this because the return on investment, in the United States, it was different than Honda was doing at the time over in Japan. GM can't do that. Not now. So yeah. why why toy with it?
0: Well, well, and I, and I misspoke. This is a brand new design. This is not a couple years old design. This is a brand new design, um, but they just appear multiple years behind based on the design right. they've released. Yeah, um, sure. And it seems like GM is excited about their um, their battery technology, and they're just trying to find more places to put it. That seems like the whole impetus. Which is that a like Tesla said, move? Um, they said, that, "Well, their battery system is called Altium, U-L-T-I-U-M. Right. Um yeah. I don't know much about it beyond that, but you know, I think you know they're just trying. It seems like they're just trying to fit more uses to it, which seems misguided.
1: <laughs> well, if you're trying to compete on the marketing side with Tesla, Tesla's not even trying to market. They don't market anything. Right? They don't. They don't pay any dollar a single dollar towards advertising they they haven't and they're on both ends of the spectrum they're on the automotive side which is mass production somewhat and also on the rocket side which is very slow production so they got both ends there and they they have made it a conscious decision to stay out of the airplane market so if tesla's staying out of the aircraft market that should tell you a lot because it's a super risky risky not that spacecraft aren't but Having the general public flying your product is a very risky investment. And why GM would want to go into a place that Tesla clearly doesn't doesn't even make any sense to me.
0: All right. Well, that'll do it for today's episode of Struck. If you're new to the show, thank you so much for listening. And please leave a review and subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Check out the WeatherGuard Lightning Tech YouTube channel for video episodes, full interviews, and short clips from the show. And follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Our handle is at WG Lightning. Tune in next Tuesday for another great episode on aviation, aerospace engineering and lightning protection. Strike Tape WeatherGuard Lightning Tech's proprietary lightning protection for radomes provides unmatched durability for years to come. If you need help with your radome lightning protection, reach out to us at weatherguardarrow.com. That's weatherguard, A E R O.com.